Shalom Aleichem and welcome back to Sefer Maccabim. Last time we learned how Yehuda embarked on a mission into the Gilad, east of Eretz Israel, to save the Jews trapped there, and returned successfully without a single Jew being killed. Now we're going to return to something we left off with back in chapter 3. You may remember that after the Maccabees' victory at the Battle of Bet Choron, Antiochus starts emptying his royal treasuries purely to hire more mercenaries to fight the Jews. Then he realizes he doesn't have enough money, and he embarks on a campaign into Persia to raise money by taxing the populations there under Greek control, and hopefully reconquering the Parthians, who won independence from the Greeks several decades before. So Antiochus is marching east through Persia and makes a beeline for a certain city he has heard about. This city contains a temple piled with riches there, left by Alexander the Great more than a hundred years previously. Antiochus thinks, if I can get that under my control, it'll do very nicely to fill my treasuries. So he tries to take the city and raid the temple, but the city's inhabitants have heard of the king, they've heard that he's after their temple of riches, they rise up against Antiochus and fight back against him in battle, and they are successful. Antiochus has no choice but to flee back into Mesopotamia. While he's there, trying to figure out what to do next, a messenger comes and brings him terrible news from Judea, that the Jews overcame Lysias and his huge army, pulled down the pagan altar Antiochus he himself had set up in Jerusalem, and the Jews have rededicated their temple and fortified the city of Betzur, which the Seleucids had once used as a garrison. When Antiochus hears this terrible news, he is so shocked that he becomes sick and falls into bed. Many days pass, and Antiochus remains sick with grief. In fact, he's so sick, his condition is deteriorating, and he realises that actually he hasn't got long left. So he calls his friends around his bedside and addresses them. I once possessed great wealth and power, but I remember how I ransacked all the gold from Jerusalem and decreed how her inhabitants must be destroyed. This, I believe, is the reason all this misfortune has befallen me. Incredibly, it seems Antiochus is doing a teshiva of sorts, or if not a proper teshiva, at least he seems to recognise that Ronki did. Not that I'm claiming this exonerates him, but I guess it's something. After this, Antiochus calls Philip, one of his close friends who'd been with him throughout his campaign, and appoints him as the regent of the empire. Not as king, that position is reserved exclusively for Antiochus' son, Antiochus V, but Philip will now be in charge of running the kingdom's affairs and helping to raise the nine-year-old Antiochus V to be the next king. Then, around four years by now after the start of the revolt, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, dies in Babylon. When Lysias, the nobleman who Antiochus had originally left in charge, hears of the king's death, he crowns Antiochus, known as Antiochus Eupater, I think that's how you pronounce it, as the new Seleucid king. As the text tells us, around this time, the mercenaries shut up in the Acre start to make trouble. They besiege the base of Megdash and start, or rather resume, to harass the local Jews living there. Yehud HaMakabi refuses to stand for this and calls all the God-fearing Jews together to besiege the Acre with catapults and other engines of war. A few of the mercenaries, however, slip through the siege and make their way out of Judea, north to Antioch, together with some Hellenist Jews, where they meet up with Lysias and the boy king Antiochus V. They have some complaints to make. My king, we were loyal to your father and we pledge loyalty to you as well. But back in Judea, there's a bunch of rebellious Jews who refuse to obey your orders. They shut us, your loyal subjects, up in the tower. They kill all of us they can reach. They've built up their sanctuary and their garrison at Bitsur. They're going completely wild. Unless you step in to stop them, they'll do even worse things and you will lose all control over them. Stop these rebels, you cannot delay. So, the Greeks and the Hellenists completely slander the Maccabees to the new king. As can be expected, the nine-year-old king gets very angry. 
Here he is being told about a bunch of strange people who refuse to recognize his authority and apparently go around murdering those who do. Why wouldn't he get angry? Antiochus V orders another army be mobilized and sent into Judea, and the scene is shaping up for another significant battle. This time, the Seleucid army is even larger than before. It contains 100,000 foot soldiers, 20,000 cavalry, and 230 war elephants. The Greeks hired these elephants from India, and elephants were the war tanks of the ancient world. They were several meters high, clad in chainmail armor, fitted with brass helmets, fed on grape and mulberry juices to stir up their tempers and make them ready to cause as much damage possible in battle. Their riders, who came from India with the elephants, would sit protected in wooden towers atop the elephants and rain down arrows and other projectiles, and soldiers would march alongside the elephants wherever it went. These elephants were truly formidable beasts, and it's not hard to see why the Seleucids went to such lengths to hire them. The Greeks were, however, violating a treaty made with Rome by bringing the elephants in the first place. Remember, even before the Maccabean Revolt began, the Greeks' military dominion was starting to decline, and Rome were becoming the power to be reckoned with, especially in the Western Mediterranean. After a series of Roman victories over the Greeks several decades before the Maccabean Revolt, the Roman Senate forced Antiochus III, father of Antiochus Epiphanes, to withdraw his troops from most of Europe, surrender all war elephants, and limit his navy to just 12 warships, besides no longer being allowed to recruit mercenaries for his army from Roman territory. Much like the infamous Treaty of Versailles Germany was forced to sign at the end of World War I, this treaty, which became known as the Treaty of Apamea, after the location in modern-day Turkey where it was signed, this treaty essentially decimated the size of the Seleucid military and ensured they would never ever be a power to rival Rome. So by breaking this treaty, the Seleucids risked bringing down Rome's wrath upon them. But apparently, Lysias and Antiochus were desperate enough that the hope of bringing Judea back under their control, to them, was worth the risk. So this huge Seleucid army enters Judea from the south. First, they try to capture Betzur in the Judean hills, but the Jews who conquered it prior to the rededication of Yerushalayim have fortified it well, as we land at the very end of chapter 4. And the Jews who are there successfully fend off the invading Seleucid army. Undeterred, Lysias and Antiochus try again, this time approaching from Betzacharia, which is located in Elon Shavut, southwest of Yerushalayim. Yehuda is forced to lift his siege on the Acre and concentrate his forces there. Very early in the morning, the king rises to ready his army, and the battle is imminent. The Maccabees are readied in the hills with their arrows and their slingshots, just like they had been before. But suddenly, they hear an awful sound unlike anything they've heard before. A dreadful stomping from the elephant's feet, the terrible rattling of their harnesses, the roars from the huge army marching with the elephants. And the Jews are scared, seriously scared. They think this time they might be outmatched. As the first of the great beasts comes into view, the sun reflecting off their metal armour makes the mountains light up like lamps of fire. And as the rest of the army come into view, tens of thousands of foot soldiers behind the elephants, the Jews shrink back in fear. Yehuda, as always, leads his men in a charge against the enemy and slays 600 mercenaries. But it's not enough, the army is advancing. At this point, Yehuda's younger brother, Elazah Avrani, the fourth son of Atisyahu, sees that one of the elephants, bigger than the rest, is bedecked with a royal harness. And Elazar thinks, that must be the elephant the king is riding on. That's the one I've got to go for. And he charges into the battle, slaying soldiers left and right, heading straight for the royal elephants. Unbeknown to Elazar, this elephant was not actually the one the king was riding on. 
but only happened to be bearing the royal seal. Alazar throws himself underneath the elephant and plunges his spear deep into its soft underside. The elephant is instantly slain, but before Alazar has time to crawl out from underneath it, the elephant's carcass falls down on top of him and crushes him. Alazar ben Matityahu is Nifta. Stricken and demoralized, the Jews retreat, and it's the first time in the entire world that the Seleucids have won a battle against the Maccabees. The Havdil, I'm reminded of the third Harry Potter book, where Harry suffers his first loss in a Quidditch match after being attacked by Dementors and falling off his broom. But I digress. The Maccabees retreat to Jerusalem, and encouraged by their victory, Lysias and Antiochus march north with their army and besiege the holy city. They also besiege Betzur and hope to recapture it from the Jews. But as it turns out, the Jews there surrender without a fight, and the Greeks are able to take the city of Betzur with no casualties. Why? The year is five years after the start of the revolt or so. It's the year 3626 since creation, and it's also a Shemitah year. This means the Jews have not been able to farm the land, and they don't have sufficient food supplies to be able to withstand such a siege. So they surrender from the outset. Meanwhile, back in Yerushalayim, the siege is taking its toll on both the Jews inside and the Greeks outside. For many days, the Greeks' war engines rain rocks and other projectiles against the Jews in the city, and the Jews use their engines, in turn, against the Greeks. The Greeks' food supplies are running low, and the Jews in the city have run out of food, and because it's a Schmitter they cannot go and collect anymore. Famine is spreading, the situation is deteriorating, and the Jews are close to giving up. But at that time, Lysias hears news that the situation back in Antioch has taken an unexpected turn. Philip, whom Antiochus IV appointed as regent of the empire while on his deathbed, has arrived back from Babylon and proclaimed himself as king. Lysias is now faced with a political issue, which requires him to return to Antioch to oust Philip and secure the throne for Antiochus V. So Lysias offers the Jews a truce. You stop your fighting, you give up trying to win independence for yourselves, and we'll leave you alone. No more persecution, no more us attempting to force Greek culture on you. We'll let you live as you wish, you can live the ways of your people. Provided you remain part of our empire and don't insist on fighting for independence. Now this is where it gets interesting. You might remember how back in chapter 2, we learned how the Jewish army was not uniform. It was comprised of two main groups of Jews. The minority, the Maccabim, consisting of Yehuda and his core followers, whose desire is to liberate Eretz Israel from foreign rule. And the majority, the Hasidim, whose wish is to live in the ways of their ancestors and are willing to fight the Greeks who prevent them from doing so. Until now, the Maccabim and the Hasidim had been fighting as one man with one heart. But now, presented with this truce, the difference in their motives become very apparent. The Hasidim say, Sure, let's accept it. They're agreeing to stop persecuting us and let us live by the Torah of our fathers. It's a no-brainer. But Yehuda and his followers reject the truce, saying, We are not merely fighting to be free to live as our ancestors lived. We are fighting to free Eretz Israel and achieve political sovereignty in our land. The only way we can be sure long-term of being free to live by the Torah of our fathers is by achieving political independence. As such, we cannot accept this truce, since it involves us remaining part of the Seleucid Empire. Passively, however, the truce is accepted, because if the Maccabin were to go out to war against the Seleucids, their forces would be depleted because the Hasidim wouldn't go out to fight with them. And Lysias does anyway need to end the siege and return to Antioch. Upon seeing the Jews appear to accept the truce, Lysias takes Menelaus, the Henelist Kohen Gadol, appointed by Antiochus IV, and has him suffocated in a tower of ashes. 
So the siege on Yerushalayim is lifted. Lysias and Antiochus V return to Antioch, successfully kill Philip and re-establish Antiochus V as king. And Judea is left in relative peace. The sages also declared the day the siege was lifted, the 28th of the month of Shabbat, as a minor chag. As we learn from Megillat's Tarnit, a document containing all the minor holidays established by the Chachamim in the times of the Beis Amikdash. The 28th of Shabbat was observed as a minor chag until the destruction of the second Beis Amikdash some 200 years later. And this is how the situation stands at the end of chapter 6. Antiochus V reigns with Lysias as his regent. The Hasidim have mostly returned to their homes and families. The Maccabim are holding Yerushalayim, and Judea is enjoying a period of relative quiet. Until the next chapter.